0: Anybody ever been to the Omaha Zoo? Yeah, so we took the kids up there um, not long ago, and uh, and and had a good time. You know, they they kind of like theme everything. So when you go to Africa, it's hot and it's and it's dusty and there's sand everywhere. You know, while you're looking at the uh, while you're looking at the lions and whatnot, and and everything like feels like you're in that place. Like they they theme it. And and we had made it through um, a big part of the day, and uh, to where we're down to the okay. We've only got two hours left. What do you guys want to see? And we're looking at the map and whatnot. Like, where do we want to go? And my kids wanted to go to the bug house to look at the bugs. And I was like, you know, we could also go to the Alaska and look at penguins. Like, we could do that. They're like, yeah, with the bugs. And I'm like, yeah, but the penguins. And and they voted me down. And we went to the bug house. And I gotta be honest, I don't like bugs. Like, I'm I'm like bugs freak me out. And I I try to play cool. Uh, When Nessa and I got married, I was, like, so scared of spiders that she, like, had to kill the spiders. Um, I just don't like, I don't like bugs. And, uh, but I, you know, my kids want to see the bugs, so we go into the bug thing. And it's, it's themed, right? So there's dangly stuff hanging from the ceiling everywhere, and it's darkish and creepy. And we go to the first thing, and everything's in these little terrariums, just on the walls and everything, like, built in and, and we go and there's like a big um, tarantula thing like I forget what they call it. It's a special kind that eats kids like it's this giant thing that and it's kind of like curled up in a ball. It's like the size of a softball. I don't even have his legs out. And it's like this big giant thing. And I'm like, oh, this is not cool. And then uh, and so I'm I'm like, yeah, you guys do your thing. I'm just I'm just praying I make it out of here. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the kids are like, whoa, and they all go run into one of the terrariums. And I go running over, and they're, they're um, I can't remember if they're Goliath beetles or hissing, hissing cockroaches. They're hissing cockroaches, which are big. And there's like a thousand of them in this terrarium crawling all over the top of each other, just roiling in bugness. And the kids are like, cool, and blah, blah. And I bend over to look in this thing. And when I do, one of those dangly things from the ceilings touches the back of my neck. I involuntarily... And the bug house is full of families. There's kids everywhere. That big four-letter word that they usually associate with a bomb comes flying out of my mouth at full volume. I throw my hat off and, I, and I, I look up and Josiah's standing there and he doesn't know what's happening. He just knows dad's having a freak out. So his eyes are this big, which like scared me even more. Like I'm convinced something's on me because Josiah's going, like, he's in this big, like, what happened? And I'm like, and I just screamed profanity to this whole room full of kids, like, drop the big one. And it just came flying out of me. I run out of the room, literally run out of the room like I'm being chased. I get out to the lobby and I'm standing there going, ah! And Josiah comes out like, you okay? I was like, yeah, I kind of, I kind of freaked out there, didn't I? (laughs) He was like, big time. And so, uh, so I went, so dad went out and got a a slurpee while the kids looked at the bug house. Apparently I can't handle the bug house. That actually will come into play in a little bit. I don't just tell that stuff to humiliate myself. Um, but this morning we're, we're coming up against another one of the major transition bo- points in the book of Romans. Maybe like the transition point. Um, and I know I've, I've hammered this to death in this study, uh, but I can't stress enough how important the structure of Romans is um, when you get to this chapter. Really, really important. This chapter starts with another one of Paul's great transition words. In the New Living, it says, uh, uh, and so, um, in, the, in the New King James, which I read in Bible college years ago, it says, I beseech you, therefore, this big therefore, um, which basically is a way of denoting an if-then scenario. Um, if all of these things are true, then this is what comes next. Uh, there are several of these in this book. Most of them are what we call indicative trans- transitions. Transitions. Um, if you want your theological word for the day, which is you're saying, if this is true, then this is true. Like that's what we call an indicative transition. But this morning um, is kind of, I said it's the big transition. This is what we call an indicative imperative. An indicative imperative trans- transition. Which is just a fancy way of saying that everything before this is what is. It's the indicative. It's, it's, the, it's just the truth. Um, it's Paul telling you how things are. Okay, um, and then the imperative is the word we use for command language. It's what you do because of the way things are. So anywhere in the book of Romans, there's an indicative imperative. I'm giving you the theology lesson for the day, the like seminary theology stuff. Any, anytime there's an indicative imperative shift, is basically a, because this is true, here's what you do. Um, I don't know, if, I'm sure you've noticed, my sermons are built on an indicative imperative. Um, we talk about the Bible, we learn something, then we go, how do we respond to this? What do we do? What's the imperative based on what we've talked about today? How do we respond to this? All of Paul's books that are designed to communicate theology, some of his books are very um, intentionally structured. In 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with problems. Um, it's a response to some news he got. Um, in Philippians, they had sent him a care package when he was in prison and he sent like a thank you letter. Um, so those aren't necessarily designed to be even though there's a lot of theology in them, they're not designed to be a theological treatise. Um, they're very purposeful books. But every book he wrote to be a like a theological treatise, there's an indicative imperative shift in the book. And theologians take these very, very seriously. Um, in Galatians, it happens in, in chapter 5. Paul spends the majority of the book telling people that they're saved by grace and there's nothing they can do by working the works of the law to receive that. Um, in fact, he even says in that book that if if you're saved by grace and you turn back to fall the law it can be detrimental it can actually you can fall from grace whatever that means like it's a uh and he, and he spends this whole five chapters or four and a half chapters saying five and a half chapters saying there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation and there were people who were saying you could and he was arguing against those people and then he shifts in the middle of chapter 5 and says so i say let the holy spirit guide your lives then you won't Uh, do what your sinful nature craves. And he goes on from there, and everything after that shift is, is behavioral. It's the way you should live in light of grace. Um, he lays out a list of clear behaviors that are evidence that you're living in the flesh. We call them the works of the flesh in chapter 5. And then he, then he talks about, um, the, a list of things that, that are indicative of living in the spirit. We call them the fruits of the spirit. And then he goes on to tell, you know, People, uh, how they should live, uh, in relation to other people and their struggles. He's talking about helping each other with their burdens and, and let each one carry his own, um, burden. And then he said, uh, then he says this, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, you'll reap a harvest of blessing if you don't give up. So Paul spends the majority of this book telling you that salvation has nothing to do with your behavior. And then he shifts the imperative and says, therefore, live the way you should. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting shift. Now go and do good. Go and do the, don't get tired of doing good things. In Ephesians, the transition happens in chapter five also. After four chapters of some really rich theology, um, Paul says this, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. There's that therefore again. There's always this, this transition word in the middle of an indicative imperative shift. It says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. Because you're his children. He goes on to say, live lives filled with love. Follow the example of Christ, um, who loved us and offered himself for our sacrifice. Be a pleasing aroma. Let no sexual immorality, impurity, greed be among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. And this list of behavior continues to like, husbands should act like this. Wives should act like this. Kids should act like this. Parents should act like this. Um, and, And it goes on and on. There's all this behavioral stuff. But not until... That shift, everything before that is theological. It is what is. And then after you shift, you go to the behavioral part. Same thing happens in Colossians and Thessalonians. And I say all this to say, this is not a weird function in the book of Romans. This shift that we're going through today is not like an out of the blue Romans kind of thing. This is the way Paul does theology. He lays out the indicative, what is, and then he lays out the imperative, what you do with that. How you live in light of that. This is the way it works. This is how the gospel works and it's what makes the gospel different and it's what makes the gospel good news. The gospel is not a list of behaviors that are imposed on us from the outside that we obey. That was the law. The gospel is, different. on the contrary, the gospel is truth. It's reality. It's a word. It's a logos that we take in. We align our reality to that, to, to, what, to what is and then that word changes us and it comes out from the inside, transforms us as we're going to see this morning. But the structure of the gospel is indicative uh, or, or this is what is true, followed by imperative. This is how that should impact you. This is what impact that should have. I can't stress how important this order is and how, how often we get it wrong. Because if someone is sinning, our natural response is to say, stop it. Stop sinning. Like, we, this outside in approach. Don't sin. Sin is bad, so don't do it. And we'll quote passages from the imperative part of Paul's letters. We'll, we'll quote passages from the second half of the letters. It says here, not to do these things. Right? Paul says, let there be no sexual, sexual immorality, uh, impurity or greed among you. So stop doing those things, we tell people. And if someone does that, if they obey that, we feel like, they're better. We feel like, they did, like things are better. We won. That's a win. We said stop sinning. They stopped sinning. They might even suffer fewer natural consequences, which is a win, because sin has consequences. We can count that as, as success. But in truth, their situation is no better at all. and may have even gotten worse because they figured out how to cover the symptom of the problem rather than actually give them the cure that can help the problem. You ever had a flu and you take like, uh, uh, DayQuil or something and you feel all better? Anybody ever had that happen? Like, or, or you know, you got a little fever, you take a Tylenol and it just goes away and you're like, oh, that was easy. I, uh, I actually got super sick 12, 15 years ago or something, um, uh, because I had the flu and I figured out if I took DayQuil every four hours on the hour, um, I felt great. Like, And at like three hours and 58 minutes, I started going, what is wrong with me? I don't feel so good. Oh, and I'd pop another DayQuil. If I did three a day, I could get through a work day, make it home. I was in bad shape when I got home. Triple shot of NyQuil. I was out like a light. Get up and do it again the next morning. I didn't have to miss any work. It was great until I got a really, really bad pneumonia. Like, And uh, basically missed three weeks worth of work because uh, I got so sick. Because I was suppressing the symptoms. Daquil does nothing to get rid of the flu or the fluid that was building up in my lungs because I had the flu. All it did was suppress symptoms. But we can go. No fever? All good. Like, I'm fine. Paul doesn't do that. Before Paul says anything about immorality or greed in Ephesians, he says this, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for that. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you do. So we can't boast about it. He lays out the, imp- the indicative first. This is what's true. You can't do anything to receive God's salvation. The Gospel always precedes behavior. Always. The only reason we can talk about the way Christians should live today is because we've spent eight chapters talking about how because of the way God saved you there's nothing you can do to separ- be separated from God's love we have established that in this book the only reason we can get into here's how you should live is because we know nothing can separate us from the love of God you can't do Romans in bites the context is everything we spent three chapters talking about God's sovereignty and how unknowable are his ways When it comes to Him sharing His grace with the world and every tribe and nation. Only because we have established all that truth can we now talk about the way we should respond to this. So having uh, established how important this transition is, let's look at it. Paul says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behaviors of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to, uh, to know God's will for you, which, which is good and perfect, and, or good and pleasing and perfect. Reading's hard. <laughs> Most of us know this, this passage pretty well, uh, and it's so beautiful. Um, if we had time, we could just park on this kind of introduction. Um, all morning, but um, we're going to have to move through it fairly quickly. Um, the real magic here, uh, what makes this transition different from Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, all the other times Paul has an indicative imperative shift, is in this book, Paul didn't have any background with these people. So he has to actually explain how this shift happens, which is, which is really cool. He tells us how it works. He says this, um, because of all He has done for you. So he tells us, because of the first half of the book, we can now do this. Because of everything He's done, because of how He saved you. Um, Paul makes it clear that all Christian behavior is born out of the comprehension of God's love for us. Because of what He has done for you, we do. We don't obey because it's the right thing to do. We don't even do it because it's better for society and has better consequences all those things are true, but that's not why Paul says that we live godly lives. Paul makes it clear that the gospel precedes that behavior. We don't act a certain way because we want to earn some favor for God or because we want to be on His good side or because we think if we do, um, we might have more power in our prayers. Or like None of that is what Paul says. We live godly lives because we grasp that we are saved by grace whether we obey God or not. And humble acceptance of that truth makes us want to be like the one who saved us. And to make it even more clear, Paul gives it to us explicitly. He says, don't copy the behaviors of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This is a really condensed way of saying what I've basically spent all my time so far over-explaining. Change doesn't happen by changing your behavior any more than a flu goes away by taking DayQuil. We're changed by believing the gospel. I don't know if you remember the, the word we, we spent a lot of time in chapter 6 talking about, but, but Paul said change happens when we... logitzame was the Greek word. When we logitzame, what God says. When we align our reality... And that's where we get logic from, where we, where we align our thinking with what he says is true. And that's what Paul is, is unpacking here. He's saying, when you when you believe what God has done for you, it will transform your mind and that will change you. Behavior changes when what we believe changes, when what we think changes, when what we believes is true changes, not before. Now, just so we don't lose... Um, get lost in all the analysis. We're officially changing language and focus, um, from this place. We've been in the holy place, um, verses, uh, or chapters, verses one and two of this chapter are kind of the fulcrum, or we might say the veil between the holy place and, and the holy of holies. Um, But now we're moving into a whole new new part of the tabernacle. Um, This was called the Holy of Holies. This is where the presence of God dwelt. And the high priest only entered here once a year on the Day of Atonement. Um, Otherwise, they didn't go in the Holy of Holies at all. And the interesting part of that special day was the priest focused on himself and his own sins because he was going into the presence of God. And that was a terrifying thing. You didn't do that with sin. Um, uh, A couple people tried that and they fell dead And so, from that point on, that'll scare you. So, from that point on, the priest took it really seriously. They even wore bells that jingled, and they tied a rope around their waist. And if the and if the people heard the bells stop jingling, they knew that that guy was dead, and they pulled him out by the rope. Because nobody was going to, like, stick their head in the holy place to see if the dude was still okay. Because that's a scary place. So, they took this really, really seriously. The only one who won once a year... And up to that point, the priest dealt with his own sins. He confessed his own sins. Every sin he could think of. He made sacrifices. He cleaned up at the altar. He worshipped in the holy place. And then he went into the Holy of Holies. And what he did in there was cool. It had nothing to do with him. What he did once he was in the holy place was he turned around and he pronounced blessing on the people. He would bless their upcoming year. He would confess the sins of their past year. Everything that happened in the holy place was about others. Others. It was when his time in the tabernacle went from being him focused to outwardly focused. And so that's the shift that's happening here. The Holy of Holies standing in the full presence of God, he focuses and shift from himself to others. And we're making that exact same transition this morning. We've been focused on our own sin, our own relationship with God, our own understanding of his grace, our own understanding of, our, of, of how we get cleaned up in his presence. Um, and now all of a sudden, everything goes outward. From the rest of the book, we're not looking um, at ourselves. We're not even necessarily looking at God so much. We're saying, how do I live this out in the world? And here's how it starts. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think, of, uh, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is in Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts of doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is encouraging others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership abilities, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I think I say that every week. Um, and I can honestly teach a, like a whole series on this passage, and we may do that one day. But this morning, um, we're just going to unpack an overview, and we'll talk about uh, kind of how important the context is here um, uh, before we get to the final part of the chapter. But um, this is Paul's introduction uh, to the, the 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 body as a metaphor for the church. He has a lot of these metaphors he uses: a building, a household, a temple, a flock, a bride, a garden, a field. Um, but of all of his metaphors for the church, the body is probably his favorite. He, he uses it more than any other, um, and uh, and, I, and I think it's because uh, his focus is on 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 how uh, each of us individually fits into the church, which makes this body metaphor really work. Uh, and this leads to a list of gifts that are really cool. Um, Paul's writings actually outline three different lists of gifts. Um, one here that we just talked about, one in Ephesians four, where he talks about God or Jesus giving gifts to the church—apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists—and um, then the, the gifts in, in 1 Corinthians twelve that we call the gifts of the Spirit. Um, the things that make these three gifts di- distinctive list is kind of interesting. If, if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this: There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diverse different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but the same God who works in them all. Um, so we have to bounce around a little bit to, to find all this, which always makes me nervous when we don't stay in context. Um, uh, but I do think it's important um, in this one. Many scholars call these the gifts of the Father, the gifts of the Son, the gifts of the Spirit. Um, the gifts of the, the Spirit being the one in 12, he says that clearly. In Ephesians 4, he says, And Jesus gave the church, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, we call those the gifts of the Son. And then, so these would be the gifts of the Father. And he says that, that, uh, he says there are diversities of activities, but the same God. Um, and I think that word activities is really cool in the Greek. It's, it's energeme, uh, inner, innerame, innergame, innergame. That's how you say it. I got the little pronunciation thing there, but as I said, reading's hard. Energame. I hope you can see the English word that comes from this. Um, energy, energize, um, and I think that's very telling when we look at this list uh, jesus um, or today we would we would call these kind of personality gifts like we, there's all kinds of different lists of personality traits and they're kind of fun to study and mostly we study them so we can go who's oh, not he a nine like that's what we normally do with them but it's it's kind of fun to do and and be able to tag you know people and and, and see similarities to people's personalities but um, so these aren't so much jobs there or responsibilities um or even necessarily the stuff that we're really good at. These are the things that energize us. These are the things that bring energy into the church, really. So, and, and prophecy. Some, some have no trouble speaking truth on, on behalf of God. Some people have no trouble saying, God gave me a word for you. Or, or, you know, or even quoting the scripture that way. Like, God, these are the people who can confront us and call us out. To something higher and better. And this is a really important gift. And some people, if I have to confront somebody, I have to take a nap afterwards. It's like a lot. Like I don't, I'm not super confrontational. Uh, in fact, my kids tease me sometimes because they're like, Dad, I don't know what to do, blah, blah, blah. And I'll sit down and analyze it for an hour. Well, if you do this, this could happen. If you do that, that would you just tell me what to do? Like, oh, no, I don't do that. Like, that's too much for me. Um, But there are people who are gifted at that. When they have to confront somebody, they come home, like, energized. Like, whew, I feel better. I got that off my chest. Like, and and that's a good thing. Some people would die if you asked them to get up and speak in front of people. I have people like that. Like, hey, do you ever want to teach? Like, oh, (laughs) like you see them almost faint when you mention it. Like, but doing physical work or, or cooking a meal or setting up chairs comes totally natural to them and they feel energized when they get to do it. Like they love serving and having the opportunity to serve. Teaching is one I'm pretty comfortable with. And, and even though I, I don't really know how to explain teaching, partially because it's just what happens, I can't figure out how everybody doesn't do it. Like it's, it's, uh, I'm often surprised to find out that people don't automatically break things down into digestible pieces that can be explained like it's it's it comes so naturally to me i i can't i can't learn anything new i i can't learn anything at all without thinking how would i teach that like anytime i learn i can be working on a car I'm like how do i explain that to my sons like how would i explain how to do this like it's just what happens encouraging others on the other hand is very difficult for me which is a super bummer because I love encouraging people. And I want to be, I call them cheerleaders. I want to be a cheerleader. Like I want to walk in the door and tell my kids, you're amazing, you're awesome, you're, you know, like that. I love people that do that, that just, that just bring up the atmosphere of a room because they're so encouraging. These people are amazing and I love them. And, I, and, and, and every time I try it, it sounds empty and patronizing. Like you're great. You didn't say that very well. Like, like, I'm trying to be, I don't know what, I don't know why that, does it work? In fact, I had a situation with one of my sons. He was kind of in a crisis moment and, uh, and he, and he came to me and shared it with me, which was an honor. I was glad he shared it with me. And, and I started analyzing it, you know, well, here's how you got yourself here and here's what you can do now. There's some steps you can take and blah, blah. blah. And he starts crying and says, would you just shut up and hug me and tell me everything's going to be okay? And I was like, you probably want to talk to your mom. <laughs> I just, I hugged him, but I was like, that's just not what I'm good at. Like, like, um, there's a, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the video. I probably should have showed it. But it like zooms in on the bottom half of this woman's face. Look up the nail or something I think it's called. And uh, zooms in on this woman's face. She's like, I don't know. There's just like so much pressure. And there, you know, and, uh, and I could, it's always there. It never goes away. And it's just like. I can feel it in my head, and it's just unrelenting. And and her her husband's like looking at her and kind of nodding. And the camera pulls back, and she has a nail sticking out of the middle of her forehead. And he goes, "You know, if if you took the nail," she's like, "It's it's not about the nail. Would you stop trying to fix it and just listen to me?" He's like, "But I think it I think it is though. I think it's about the nail." And she's like, "Would you always do this?" Blah blah blah. He's like, "Fine, fine." And she's like. I don't know, it's just like this pressure right in my head. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm that guy. I'm like, can I pull the nail? Like, that's all I want to do. Um, but some people are like they're energized by being encouraging and, 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 and you can tell it just comes so naturally to them. And, and I love those people. And that's how I know these are like wired in us because I want so bad to be that guy. And, and instead, I'm the, I analyze and, and, and teach. The gift of giving is, is another one of the reasons um, I don't like teaching. Tithing as a strict ten percent, everybody does it across a the board kind of thing. I, I think it hurts and hinders those who are wired to give. If you teach a giver that they're supposed to give ten percent, they're like stifled because that's how, that's what energizes them. Man, I want to, you know, I want to help. I want to give, and we all have a responsibility to be generous to be giving. But those who are energized by it and, and wired um, for giving need to give more, honestly. They, they don't need it as a spiritual discipline. They need it as this is how you fit into the body. You're one of the people God wired and hopefully gifted to support the, the move of God and the work of God. It's how they fit. Leadership is, is, is so important. It's one of those things that I think we're kind of messing up right now. Um, <clears throat> because we now have leadership seminars and podcasts trying to turn everyone into a leader, right? We think everybody can, can, can have leadership qualities and, and, uh, and it's like we're trying to, I think what we're trying to do is take their money so that we can tell them we're going to turn them into leaders. But, um, but I think we know the people that are wired for leadership. We all know them. The people who just naturally step up and lead. And yeah, they need to, to learn to, to do that well and to do it right. Um, but, uh, there are people God wired for it. And like having a lot of kids, like, like we know the ones that like the leaders and the followers. It's, it's super easy. And neither are better. They're, they're gifts. They're gifts. Some people can lead well and they're drained by it. Like it, they just like they have to run something and they're competent and they can do it and, and everything goes great. And then they go home and sleep for a month because they're like, that was so much work. You know, people are, are energized. That Greek word. By it. Compassion, some call it mercy, some call it empathy. This is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And to use that awareness to inform your response to them and meet them where they are with the gospel, as well as with help and connection and everything. To feel what they feel and treat them accordingly. That's 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 this gift of mercy, of compassion, of empathy. Some people do it naturally, and we need them in the world, we need them in the church. Reminding us to to reach out to people, reminding us that, that we have to meet people where they live. Now, I could obviously teach on each of these and how to best live in the wiring that we each have, and, and maybe we'll do a class on that this fall. But but here's the deal: most of us, just in reading this list, immediately spot ourselves. Like it's not hard to just to read the list. Like oh yeah, that's so me. You know, um, we know what energizes us. We know we know the ones that make us cringe. And the thought of doing them, and if I were to stand up here and go, this is what it means to be a Christian, you'd be like, oh God, I'm never going to make it. Like we know what energizes us. We know what drains us. What comes so naturally to us, with it's weird to call it a gift because we're just like, that's just what you do. like it, Because it's so much a part of you. But the important thing is that we tend to think the most important thing to do is the thing that we do most easily. This is, this is really easy, easy for us to do. So if you're an encourager, you feel like the church should just be an encouraging place you might get frustrated if things aren't encouraging because it's what you do. And you're like, you're always talking about sin. Can't we just encourage people and love them? If you're a prophet and, and you think the hard truth and calling people out for their sins is, is what the church should be about, you might, you might get frustrated if, if the church is always being encouraging. Giving, serving, compassion ministries. We all know how easy it is to pick a theme. For a church, right? To, to, to be like, this is, this is what we do. But the point of this passage, the metaphor of the body is the whole list. This list, this list is, is a picture of what the church is supposed to be. The whole list. It's a picture of the church. None of us are wired to do all of these things. None of us are even good at all of these things. But they're all supposed to be here. I mean, have you ever had somebody wired for compassion in the same room as somebody wired for prophecy? It can be fireworks. People need help. No, what they need is to repent and take some responsibility. And you're like, but look, if you were dealt that hand, you'd be in the same spot. Like, no, I wouldn't, because I would repent and take some responsibility. Like, these two people, they have a hard time seeing eye to eye. And the worst part is they're both right. They're both absolutely right. And they're both supposed to be in the church. Like, being, doing their part. They both represent a portion of the whole heart of the church. So how do we function when, when, when we each only bring a piece of it? We each only bring a part of it. Paul tells us. He says, because of the privilege... An authority God has given me. I give each of you this warning. Anytime, there's also a thing Paul does. He does this a lot. Um, he has no trouble laying out the theology. But anytime he gives you the imperative that here's what you do, he like falls back on a, because I'm an apostle, I do have the authority to tell you what to do. Like He, he almost has to qualify it. So it's, it's funny how whenever he turns to the command part of, of any of his letters, He reminds everybody that he's an apostle and that this this is part of my job. I'm supposed to tell people what to do. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. We have a tendency to look at at lists of gifts with the question, where do I fit? Like, what's my fit? What's my piece? Where do I go? Which I don't think is a bad thing, by the way. It's good to look at the way you fit. But the real focus of this list is not only to identify where I fit, but to recognize that we need to make room for others to fit too. We need to make space for them. and, And it's good to learn that voice. And when you hear that prophetic voice in a conversation, to know we need that voice. I want to fight that voice right now. I want to argue with that voice. But we need that voice. That's part. If we don't have that voice, we don't have the whole body. We don't have the whole thing. Part of the reason He gives us that whole list is so that we can recognize the things we can't do and to look for people who can do those things. Do what you're good at, what energizes you, but also don't try to make that a virtue that everybody aspires to because many of us will do it without thinking. We'll believe that the most important virtues are the ones that I do naturally. Like We'll just automatically assume that Like, very few of us will automatically assume the things that we're supposed to do are the things that I can't do. We'll we'll automatically assume that the church is supposed to be about the things that I naturally do. If we're a teacher in nature, and the church, you know, we believe everybody's supposed to be studying the way we study. Like, read your Bible more, and you'll hear, you know, you need to be studying, you need to be reading your Bible, you need to be digging in, uh, because that's what we love to do, that's what energizes us, that's what lights us up. Like man, if, if if that's how I connect with God and every time I study the Bible, like I come out lit up and energized, of course I'm gonna come here and go, read your Bibles more, study, do this study, do that study. I can't believe you don't study. How can you not feel what I feel when I do it? And somebody's like, I just want to set up chairs. I feel so good when I set up chairs. Like and and we criticize that, like they're not a growing and discipling being a part. I'm so far off my notes, sorry. <laughs> In the back. He'll find me. And this can affect our discipleship. At least our metric or the way we measure discipleship. Because we can believe that a mature Christian would do this. And, and my spouse and my child don't do this. So they aren't maturing. They're not growing in discipleship. And that can bug us. Well, they might be growing in things that God gifted them for. That just aren't important to us. They're different. Now I do have to be honest. There are some people who will go the opposite way. There are some people um, who will assume that everybody else's gifts are important, um, and I'm never going to live up to those. I can't do those. So I, you know, there are people um, that that feel like everybody should have my gifts. There's also people who feel like I, you know, I'll never live up to the cool gifts. You know, blah blah. But Paul's main advice in this passage is stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Do you. Do what God gifted you to do. Find your fit in the body. You are not the body. You are a part. You are needed, but you are not the body. You're not the whole thing. I'm not the whole thing. Now, let's talk about the context here because this makes the context really important. Remember, we ended last week with this big you know, explosive declaration about God's sovereignty. How great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge? How impossible is it for us to understand His decisions and His ways? Like Paul in the middle of this theological treatise is like, and this is too amazing. He ended chapter 8, I don't know if you remember, with like, how do you respond to such great things as this? Like, I don't even know how to, how to stomach this kind of love. Now he's doing it again. How great are God's ways beyond knowing? And this was after talking about Elijah and the 7,000 person remnant that Elijah knew nothing about. We talked about how Elijah thought the whole thing was on his shoulders. His depression was rooted in thinking that, that his story was what mattered. And, and God's cure for his depression, for, for, his, for his struggle, was to remind Elijah that he, God, was sovereign. And had this whole team worked out, and it didn't. And Elijah didn't have anything to worry about. That's important context for this passage because Paul is saying, "Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Don't be an Elijah. Don't feel like this whole thing is on your shoulders. It's not all about you. You have a team. There, there's a there's a body, and you're only part of it. So do your part, but don't feel like you carry the weight. Now." That's the backstory part of the context for Romans 12. The really powerful piece of context um, for me is this. Paul transitions from indicative to imperative in verses 1 and 2, saying, since all this stuff is true, here's how you live. You lay your life down. Considering all this theology we've been through and all this truth about God's grace and His love for us, the only reasonable way to respond is to lay down your own life and live godly lives that are that are approving to God. That's the only thing that makes sense in light of all of this truth is that you give your life to God. And if if I were to ask you, what does a godly life look like? What what does it mean to live a godly life? Most of us would would go straight to the standard list. Don't Don't drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, or dance, right? Don't do those things. Or we might defer to the Ten Commandments. Don't steal, murder, commit adultery. We might even add, go to church, read your Bible, tithe. Or maybe even help the poor, don't be a racist. Like, there's, We could go a lot of different directions. What does it mean to live the Christian life? To live a godly life? In light of all this theology, live a godly life. Okay, what does that look like? And before Paul gets into any of that, before he mentions any of the do's and don'ts, after telling them to give up their lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, the very first thing He says is, find your, find your people. That's step number one. You don't live a godly life alone. He tells us to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. Step number one, you're part of a body. Get in it. Do your part. Like You cannot live a godly life. You, there are no do's and don'ts that don't start with This that don't start with find your people. Be in a body. The very first thing he says a Christian should do to live like a Christian is to find their fit in the body. Figure out who they are, figure out who you are, and figure out how that fits into the greater scheme of the church. Now, remember we had that weird move um, from the the clarity of the horizontal gospel. This is what is um, in chapters 1 through 8 where everything was about our individual relationship with God. That's easy. Like, you got to kind of keep it straight. This is not about other people. This is about you. It's about your relationship with God. But that's clear. Then you got the ambiguity we got into in chapters 9 through 11, where it's like, how does God work with groups of people? When he says he judges groups of people, he benches whole groups of people, but we're still individually responsible for God. That was weird. We didn't know how to do that. And now we're seeing these two things start to combine a bit. As Paul says, the first commandment, the first ethic, the first imperative, is that you realize you're not Elijah. Don't think of yourself more highly than you want. You cannot do this alone. There is a whole list of things that the church should be and you are not all of them. So go get, get to know yourself, figure out who you are, and then figure out how that fits. Now I do have to say this, I told you that this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Um, if you haven't been here for a while, or if you have been here for a while, you know I talk about this often. But, um, but we're kind of formed around the four broken relationships in Genesis three. Adam and Eve sinned, and they immediately felt shame. For the first time ever, they weren't comfortable in their own skin. They felt the need to hide and be false. The relationship with their own self was broken. They wanted to cover up. They were not comfortable with who they are. Shame entered the human story. Then God shows up and they hide. It never happened before. It never needed to happen before. And God immediately spotted the difference and He asked, "What are you, where are you doing? Did you, did you do what I said not to do? The relationship with God was broken. It was not the same way that it had been. God calls them out, and, and, and Adam immediately separates himself from and blames the woman. That one chapter ago, he was saying, "This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The two are going to be one." He wanted to be. He didn't even want to think of himself as two people from this person. And now, all of a sudden, because of this change, the relationship with the other is broken. Something's different. He wants to create distance and separation. And finally, God told him what life was going to be like now. Marriage is going to be hard. Having kids and raising kids is going to be hard. Work was going to be hard. Things are going to fight against you like thorns and thistles, and you wonder why nothing ever goes right. That's proving the Bible is true. Our relationships with our vocation, our calling was broken. What we were made for was now going to be hard. Now, I don't know if if, uh, you see the mending that's happening here in, in chapter 12. But the place that Paul goes immediately after spending 12 chapters, 11 chapters, talking about how God fixed our broken relationship with Him, he says, figure out who you are. How you're wired. What energizes you. Be honest with an appraisal of yourself. Take off the fig leaf and get to know you. That's step number one. He says, you need to heal the broken relationship with you. Stop trying to have somebody else's gift. Stop trying to be somebody else. Who are you? And then, figure out how that fits with others. Figure out how that fits with other people's gifts. You're part of a body. You're not alone. You are supposed to fit in. You weren't saved to be alone. Learn to be one again. And we see healing starting to happen in the relationship with the other. And that comes with do what you were made to do. Do your part, make a difference, answer your calling. We start seeing the relationship with our vocation being healed. As soon as our relationship with God is redeemed, we find Paul telling us to get to work on the other three broken relationships. And this is formative to us at Open Table. Paul wraps up this chapter with a, with a list of what the Christian life should look like. Finally, after 11 chapters of theology, 11 and a half chapters maybe, we finally get to the real ethics, the do's and don'ts, which I know many of us have been waiting for. Like, give me, tell me what to do. Okay, fine, all this is true. Tell me how to live. Enough with the dry theology. Give me some homework. Send me home with something to do, and I'll get to work on it. And here's how that list reads. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in your in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will repay them, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Now, uh, please remember, this is the first imperative of this book. These are the commands. This is the first time Paul gives us any commands at all. Up to now, it's been mostly about what God has done for us. Right? He sent Jesus. He saved us. Chapter 8 says, He foreknew us, chose us, called us, saved us, glorified us. He sent the Israelites aside so the door could be opened to us Gentiles. God has done it all. And since God did all that, our only reasonable response is to live the good Christian life. Right? Now, Think of the things that, that the world does that drives you crazy, that drives us crazy. Focus on the ones that really bug you. Maybe it's their language and profanity, or maybe it's their sexuality and, and all of its deviant expressions, or or power and control at the expense of other people's freedoms, or or maybe it's just the general resistance to God and His message. Whatever it is, whatever really equals the behavior of the world to you. The stuff you don't do because Christians don't do that. If we're honest, the stuff that we judge. Think of that list. I'm going to read Paul's list of commands again. I want you to do two things. First, does your list sound like Paul's? Does your definition of the good Christian life sound like this? Second, Ask the questions, do we as a church have a single leg to stand on when we judge the world? Bear in mind, Paul says, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin in the the household of God. Let's read it again. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy. Work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Bless those who persecute Oh, wait, I already read that. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil uh, with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you'll heat burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. I hope you you at least came to the conclusion that we have a lot of work to do. And this is a great list, and I wish we had time to, to unpack all of these commands, because they're very, very rich, but we don't. But what I do want to do is pull out um, that, that this list is what the Christian life should look like. Paul makes it very clear. Because everything God's done for you, lay down your lives as a living sacrifice, here's what that looks like. And it's much more difficult than don't drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, or dance. Don't pretend to love others, really love them with genuine affection. Anyone mastered that one? rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. Can I assume that everyone patiently rejoices and prays when they're in trouble? No stress, no anxiety, just patience. And Yeah, me neither. We all bless those who persecute us and we pray that God blesses them. We all did that during the pandemic, right? How about this one? Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. That's a picture of the church, right? How about do all that you can to live at peace with everyone? Anyone out there just like to stir up trouble? And kind of debate loud like me? Not just me? This is what Christian behavior is supposed to be. And please don't mix this up. Context is king here. We established a long time ago that this has nothing to do with our salvation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's why context is important. You've got to get that first. This is not about being saved. This is not about you're going to get in big trouble if you don't do these things. This is not condemnation. This is, this is just what it should look like. This isn't a conditional command. This isn't an if-then statement. God has already committed to be with us forever and love us. Paul says twice in this letter, if God loved you when you were like a chapter 1, 2, and 3 sinner, how much more is He going to love you now that He's in His family? Like, That's been established. You can't take these commands and say, if you don't do these things, you're not a Christian. That's not how this works. This is how you live because all of that's been established. Nothing can separate you from God. In fact, this list makes no sense if you look at it like Torah. If you look at it like commands like Torah. I mean, how do you issue punishment to someone who shows love but they didn't really mean it? Yeah, that didn't seem like actually love people. He, doesn't, he says, don't just act like you love people. Really love them. How do you punish that? You got like a America's Got Talent list of judges and they're like, that did not look like real love to me. You get the X. Like, how do you punish? How do we judge patients in trouble? Because I really look... Patient when I'm super stressed. I rarely look afraid when I'm afraid. My wife's kind of learned my tells. Usually if you see me eating Tums, it means I got some major stress going on. I don't usually show it. You would be like, that dude is always patient in trouble. Like he's got the Christian thing down while my stomach eats itself. The difference in, in the list of commands that Paul gives us and the list that most of us would come up with is it's really hard to measure Paul list, Paul's list, and it's impossible to fake it. Our list, we can fake whether we want to obey or not, whether we even like Jesus or not. With enough effort, practice, we can learn the Christian life that we prefer. We can learn not to drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, and dance. We can learn how to dress Christian, wear Christian t-shirts, do the Christian thing. In fact, for a lot of us, it doesn't even take that much practice. We can get it pretty easy. But Paul's list requires something totally different. Which I think is the key to this whole chapter. Paul's list requires something so much more than discipline. We like the list that required discipline. This is how you live like a Christian. You do these things. You don't do these things. With Paul's list, the natural boring people who don't like to drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, and dance do not have an advantage over anyone else. Don't just say you love people. Actually love them. Actually go through troubles different. Actually bless those who persecute you. Paul's list actually requires real heart change at our core you can't just discipline yourself into this list we actually have to become different people Christ-like people which brings us full circle because that's how Paul started this chapter, he said don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing what you think see the difference between Paul's code of conduct and the more typical codes of conduct that, that we're used to is Paul's code of conduct can't just be copied. It can't just be cookie-cuttered. I can hand you a list and say, this is what it means to be a, a Christian. You can copy that behavior and not have any heart change going on at all. You can read your Bible. You can pray. You can, you can stop doing certain things and do other things. Just off that list. Nothing has to happen inside you to make that happen. But Paul's list, actually feeling love for someone, actually replacing anxiety with hope and patience, actually when you're going through trouble, actually truly weeping with those who weep, being eager to practice hospitality. How do you fake eagerness? You can do hospitality, because that's what you've been told you need to do. How do you fake eagerness? None of these things can just be copied. So the way to be obedient is to change. That's the only way to live Paul's code of conduct. To to, to follow Paul's imperative. Paul uses this word. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world. Let God transform you. Another sermon with two Greek words. Paul uses the Greek word metamorpho. Surely you can see the English word there, right? We generally speak of butterflies when we talk about metamorphosis. This is the word we get that from. And I think that nails it. Because metamorphosis is messy. It's slow. It requires a great deal of struggle and most of all, it usually happens in the darkness. And we don't get to watch it. We don't get to see it happening. It's happening in where you can't see it. Scientists have cut open cocoons like mid-transformation just to see what's going on. And they found out that it, the, the worm like melts into a soup of DNA. And somehow out of that grows a butterfly. It doesn't just like wings come popping out of its back. It like the, the worm deteriorates. And then somehow out of that grows a butterfly. And, and if anyone who stands honestly in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and you read those lists of sins and, and you own that, that all have sinned and, co- and fallen short of, of God's glory and you make it to chapter 12 and you read this list of the way you're supposed to live, you're like, yes, I need to melt into something totally different. The me that stood in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and said, yeah, I love getting angry. Yeah, I love fighting and bickering. Yeah, I love... I put a list up that week of, of my favorites. And you're like, this is what I'm going to be? Yes, I'm going. you're going to need to get rid of me and transform me into something completely new. And that's exactly what Paul invites us to. He said, yes, there's a way you should live. Yes, there is a call to be holy like your Father is holy. Yes, there is a good Christian life. And if you're going to live it, you're going to need to change. To go through metamorphosis. And that's the real invitation of this chapter. So, how do we respond to this? The worst part of the insect house in Omaha was the fact that it was all reflex. It was me. The real me. I'm actually afraid of a lot of things, but I'm mostly afraid of fear. And so, anytime I'm pushed, I always push back against my fears with with activity. I'm afraid of snakes, but I catch them all the time. I pick them up and I handle them because I'm afraid of them and I don't like being afraid of things. I've learned to kill my own spiders. I catch them and and handle them and deal with them now for the same reason. I don't like being afraid. But I manage my fear from the outside. Usually when I'm handling a steak, my inside is screaming and going nuts. Like on the inside, nothing's changed. Likewise, I'm fairly careful with my language. I love a good cuss word. Don't get me wrong. I use them for shock value sometimes or just to be edgy or, or for emphasis if I'm talking to somebody who gets it. When I come home and ask her, how my, ask her how my day was, I said I had a bad day. That's very different than if I put a different adjective in front of day. And she knows the difference. Like, ooh, that must have been a really bad day. When I'm out of my dad's, I'm afraid to use the word manure because he would look at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's never been manure in my life, so it's still not manure. But I don't cuss around kids, at least not other people's kids. And um, <laughs> I can usually read the room to see if it's appropriate. I have plenty of friends who would freak out if they heard me say a cuss word because they never have. And, and I don't because it would make them stumble. So I don't cuss around them. So you might be tempted, if you hung around with me for a while, to, to think that I have no fear and no profanity in my heart. But in that bug house in the Omaha Zoo, what was on the inside came out. There was no control. There was no, there was no discipline. It was all of my fear and all of my profanity and a room full of kids came out all at once. Cause those are, those are what's inside there. Jesus even said, it's not what comes from the outside that gets you dirty, it's what's on the inside that comes out. That day, in a snap, what was inside me came out. There was no amount of discipline that could, that could navigate that. The real me came out. No fig leaf control, no nothing. That guy, that one on the inside that I try so hard to control, that. Worm is the guy that Paul is, is interested in in chapter 12. He was like, that worm needs metamorphosis. Needs to change. The one, it, it needs to melt and change. However slow and painful, it needs to change into something bitter. Better. Not bitter. Better. <laughs> Reading is hard. But there's an interesting dichotomy present in this chapter as well. Attention, if you like that word better. I know I do. Sandwiched between Paul saying we need to go through metamorphosis and here's a list of of commands that demand you do is this section where Paul said God made you special. He made you with certain giftings. He made you to be you So we've got, you need to change. Here's a list you can only do if you change. Right in the middle is this thing that says, you're, you're, you're wired for something. You're, you're designed for something. He gifted you uniquely and you need to identify that gifting and find out how it fits in the body. And think about that tension. You need to transform into a whole other person and learn to be yourself. Change at the deepest core level of who you are, but do what you were wired to do and energizes you. How can both of those be possible together? Glad you asked. The coolest thing about the the butterfly metamorphosis is that from beginning to end, its DNA never changes. Which means every caterpillar on the planet has the DNA of a butterfly already there. If you take the DNA of a butterfly and the DNA of a caterpillar, they're identical. Same bug, same everything. It doesn't become a butterfly. It is a butterfly. It's wired to be a butterfly. The reason Paul tells us to change while also telling us to figure out who we are is because the person we need to change into is us. The one thing that Paul warns us away from at the beginning of this chapter is don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world. Believe it or not, most of us have been trained to do exactly that. We've been trained to be a copycat. We've been told how to act, how to love, who to love, who to hate, what to say, when to say it. We've been programmed. We've been brainwashed. What Paul is suggesting is that God called us to be something that He wired us for. And that version of us has been buried by sin. It's been buried by the world. Bad teaching, bad training, hurt, trauma, those bury it. And what Paul is saying is that the DNA of who God called you to be is in there. And to find it, you're going to need to change. To metamorphosize into that person. In Ephesians, he said it like this, God saved you by His grace when you believe. This is basically Romans so condensed down. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for, doing good, for the good things you've done. So none of us can boast about it. And this is, this is a really condensed version of what we've been studying for 11 chapters. And then Paul does his transition like this. For you are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Here Paul says that, that we've been made new so that we can do something very old. He's made us brand new so we can do something He, he wired us for a long, long time ago. We need to change into ourselves. So where I'd love to respond to this message is, is actually written in our vision statement. Our vision statement reads like this, Open Table Community Church is a community organized by and around the Word of God to cooperate in the mission of God of furthering the Kingdom of God. We accomplish this by gathering around, by gathering in worship together around a common teaching and a common table, by living in fidelity to Christ and one another, and by working hard to bring reconciliation to the four relationships broken by sin in the fall. So maybe maybe using this chapter as a model, take inventory of the four relationships in your life. How's your relationship with yourself? Are you in touch with how God gifted you? Do you know what energizes you and... and, and, and makes you feel like this is what I was wired for? Do you know who you are? Have you, have you assessed past trauma and, and pain that you still carry? Have you confessed and repented of past sins? Have you worked to bring reconciliation to that relationship? How's your relationship with God? What's your prayer life look like? Are you hiding Are you taking time with God? It's hard to have a relationship when you don't take time with each other. How about others? Are you harboring unforgiveness? Uh, Are you you fostering healthy relationships? Are you investing in in the relationship with others? Are you forgiving? Are you showing up for your people and calling them when you need help? What about your calling? Are, Are you doing what God made you to do? Either at work or in ministry or maybe even just in your own relationships or in your neighborhood. Are you just living to survive or are you living on purpose? And don't let the answers to any of these questions make you feel condemnation. We've dealt with that. That's gone. That's not what this part of the book is about. There's just more work transformational work, metamorphosis work. And a list of do's and don'ts is not sufficient to take us through that. We need to continue to grow and change from the inside out. And that requires actually choosing to believe the gospel. Allowing the reality of the gospel to change your heart. But it also requires a commitment to authenticity as long as we allow ourselves to be copied and cookie-cuttered, this is what I'm supposed to look like, so this is what I'll look like. We'll never change. So let's do the work. We've talked a lot about how important it is that the Romans did not stop after chapter 8. It's more than just getting saved and going to heaven. Paul had eight more chapters after that. Because there's more life to live after that. There's more change to go through after that. There's more work to do. There's, there's deeper to dive after chapter 8. I'm encouraging us to take that dive. Let's work on assessing honestly where we are so that we can pray that God will continue to work on our hearts and make us more like Him.